0: today for our message Easter weekend today for our message I want us to focus on a particular word a particular theme in scripture and I'd like to invite you to bow your heads as we begin our study together father in heaven I pray that you would bless us and that you would be with us I ask Lord that you would speak through me I ask Lord that you would speak through your word and I ask Lord that you would speak to your people in Jesus name we pray amen are your dreams or what were your dreams? Sorry, not your dreams, but maybe if you're younger, what were your dreams of the ideal life to live when you were 13 years old? When you were 14 years old, what did you really want to be doing? When you were 15 or 16, what was your dream occupation, your dream uh, 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 activity that would take up your spare time? When you were 16, what did you want to do? When you were 17, what did you want to do? I want to share with you a story of a young young teenager who, from the age of 13 to 16 and then 17, probably did what you and I have not dreamed of doing. In 1873 or four, one of the early Adventist pioneers, his name was John Nevin Andrews, was called by the General Conference to go as a missionary, as the first official missionary for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There was a group of believers in Switzerland who had been meeting, and they had written a letter to the General Conference and said, can you please send us a missionary? We need someone to come and teach us. The General Conference thought about who they could send, who was the best capable person of being sent over there, and they chose John Nevin Andrews. He was married to his wife, Angeline. They had a daughter called mary and a son i believe the son was called joseph and they decided that this was a family to send however sadly just before they went about a year and a half before they traveled over to switzerland his wife angeline died so now he is a single father jay and andrews he's he's in his uh mid no he's in his late 40s or around 50 he's a single parent a single father father, but he travels over to Europe with his two young children, his daughters around the age of 13, 14. And they travel over to Europe. That's why I asked the question, what did you dream of doing when you were 13 or 14? Was it traveling with your father, who, who's a minister, who's a pastor, who's, who's really busy in the work of the church, and you don't have a mother, and you're traveling to a country where you don't know the language, you're traveling to a place where you're away from your cousins and your uncles and your aunties, you're traveling to a place where, where, where you don't have a church family to go and fellowship with. That was what came to Mary Andrews as they got on the ship and they sailed over there to Switzerland. Landing in Switzerland, they made a covenant and a pact. That as a family, they would only speak French to each other inside the home, only French, so they could learn it quicker. There they were as a missionary family, uh, no friends really, no real family around there, and they set about to translate the magazines of Signs of the Times uh, into the French language and distribute it throughout France. They set about to set that the church structure and the organization that would enable the growth and other missionaries to come in the future. But unfortunately, when the church sent them, sent them over as missionaries, they didn't quite send enough money. They didn't know how much missionaries needed in those days. They didn't really know know, what the cost of living was over there. And so they sent some money for the project. They sent some money for his own budget, but the money for the project wasn't quite enough. And rather than let the project suffer, he dipped into his own personal money to aid the project money, which left him, which gave him less money to live on, which meant he had to kind of live a a less healthy life buying cheaper food and buying a, 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 a less a diverse diet. He got sick quickly. The doctor came and said, you better fix up and you better eat properly because you're not doing yourself any favors. And so they kind of, you know, things got a little bit better. But as they were there working, his daughter, who at the age of now 13, 14, 15, she was really the rock of the ministry. She was the one who spoke French the best. She was the one who would translate the articles. She was the one who would edit. She was really the editor of the signs of the times in France for her father, who's the famous missionary. But Mary doesn't really get much accolade. She doesn't really get much press. But without Mary, J.N. Andrews could never have done what he did. Time goes on and Mary gets sick. And in those days, it wasn't in the time when when there was vaccinations and things like that are on certain diseases. And if you got TB, it was almost a death sentence. I remember when I was in school, I think it was the age of 12 or 13, we all got our TB shots in, in our arm and that was a, a vaccination against TB. In those days, they didn't have that. When you got TB, it was almost a death sentence and she gets the disease. He thinks it might be it, but he's not quite sure. He says, we need to go back to America. So they go back to America. And as they travel back to America to go and see J. N., Sorry, John Harvey Kellogg, they go and see John Harvey Kellogg. And John Harvey Kellogg says, yes, it is so. It is so. Your daughter has TB and, and she's going to die. And J.N. Andrews, I'm admonishing you, don't go into her room. Don't go with her, because if you do, you're going to catch her as well. And then you're going to die. Jane Andrews says, there's no way I can leave my daughter in in a hospital room on her own. There's no way I can do that. She has been my rock in Europe. She has been the one our family has relied on. You know, she has been the bedrock of our ministry. And I will not leave her to die in a hospital room on her own at the age of 16, 17. He goes and spends every day, every night there in the hospital room with his daughter until she dies. And he buries her in the family plot there in Rochester, New York. He makes his way back to Europe. But the words of John Harvey Keller were true for he had caught uh, TB off his daughter. Arriving back in Europe, he quickly got sick. He quickly got sick and, and they tried to do things to get him better. John J.N. Loughborough, who was a missionary here in England, was sent by the General Conference over to Switzerland to anoint him. And he gets there and anoints him, but even the prayer of of anointing over over J.N. Andrews did not bring healing in a physical sense in the immediate time. And he sadly passed to his death at just the age of 55 in Basel, Switzerland, where he's buried today. 55. I often think what our church missed out. He should have been alive during the crisis of 1888. He should have been alive through 1900 and 1901. He should have been alive during those key critical years in our church's history, but he died at just the age of 55, probably two or three decades before he should have died. Our church lost a lot when he died, but but, but it, it, the daughter When you go and see her grave there in in the cemetery in Rochester, New York, if you ever do. We did a lineage episode about You can see a picture of her grave. And when you see her grave, it's there and it says, Mary Andrews, Mary Andrews. 1861, she's born. 1878, she dies. And then there's the word etched in the stone there. It says, teenage Adventist pioneer. Teenage adventist pioneer what was your dream when you're 14 what was your dream when you're 15 what was your dream when you're 16 and 17 was it to go and be a a pioneer missionary in a country a language you didn't speak a people you didn't know work there so hard live a life of self-sacrifice catch a disease that was incurable at the time and die when you just turned 17 Mary Andrews is an example is an example of someone who gave everything in the early years of our church she gave all she sacrificed everything in the early days of our church and she's an example of what total surrender and total commitment and total dedication and total sacrifice looks like she's an example to us of that I want you to turn in your Bibles today. I want us to look at a few other types of sacrifice and a few other instances of people who have sacrificed in the Bible. Our sermon today is entitled Total Sacrifice. I want to look at some other examples of people who have sacrificed in the Bible. And what did they give and what type of sacrifice is it? Because the reality is all of us, every single one of us, sacrifice something. But do we sacrifice in the right way and to the right degree as to how God asks us to sacrifice? The first evidence indication of sacrifice, at least on a human level in the Bible, is taken from the book of Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, we've got the story there of the two brothers. And Ellen White in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, she enlarges on, 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 the, on, the, on the details we have here. But we know from the pages of scripture that Cain and Abel had to bring the sacrifice to God. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4 that um, Abel, verse 2, Abel was the keeper of the sheep and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And the Bible says in the process of time that Cain brought the fruit of the ground as an offering to God. And verse four says, and Abel brought up the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain and his offering, he had no respect. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Here we have an instance in the Bible where there are two sacrifices. One of them God respects, and one of them God does not respect. One of them was what God had asked or required, and the other one was not. One of them he brought what God asked. The other one he brought what he wanted to bring. It's still a sacrifice. It's still a sacrifice, but it isn't, it isn't the sacrifice you have been asked to bring. You could say, if you're going to characterize this sacrifice in Genesis chapter four, that Cain brought the wrong sacrifice, the wrong sacrifice, the wrong sacrifice. He should have brought a sheep, but instead he brought nuts, sorry, sorry, fruit and vegetables. God said, that's not what I asked for. I asked for the lamb. The lamb is a symbol of my son who will one day die. The fruits and vegetables are not I want, I asked for the lamb. He brought the wrong sacrifice. Sometimes we come to God and God asks us for this, but we decide to bring him that. It's a value to us, but it's not a value to God. It's not a value to God. Sometimes we put value on things that there should not be value on, and we bring, we bring things to God. We bring things to God that God's not asking us for. Sometimes I say, God, God, look, I'm sacrificing my time. I'm sacrificing my time I'm working for the church I'm giving up my time and God's like I didn't ask you for your time I asked you to sacrifice your career I asked you to sacrifice your career and change the course of action that you're on and instead of pursuing that career I asked you to pursue that career so therefore just giving me your time is not enough I ask for your whole trajectory of your life sometimes I say God God I'm sacrificing my money I'm sacrificing my money. I'm giving, I'm giving so much money to the church. Look, God, look, I just put 100 pounds in the offering above and beyond what, 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 I, what I'm required to give. God, I'm giving you my money. I'm giving you my offering. I'm giving you my tithe. I was like, that's good, and that's okay. But in addition to that, I'm asking for your heart. Money cannot replace the heart is what I'm asking for. Turn in your Bible to so 2 Samuel chapter 15. And 2 Samuel chapter 15, we have there a fascinating story. 2 Samuel chapter 15, and there in the Bible. Second, sorry, first Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we've got there the story of Samuel and Saul, and they have a, a conversation together. Saul has gone in this chapter, verse 2 and 3. Saul is called to go to the Amalekites and kill them. Wipe them out. They're a tribe that has rebelled against God. They've, they, they've refused to listen to God. And now comes the time when they are going to be wiped out. And the Bible says, thus says the Lord of hosts. I remember which, that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid in wait um, in the way when we came out of Egypt. Verse three, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and camel and ass donkey god says listen i want you to go to the amalekites i want you to wipe out all the humans but not just the humans i'm asking you to wipe out as well to wipe out as well their livestock but when saul went there as you read down in the chapter he went there and he's like well you know ah, some of these sheep just look too good some of these cows just look too good it doesn't really make sense for us to, to to kill all of the livestock surely we can keep some of them the good ones the, the fatted calves and and the sheep that just look so well there's no point us killing all of them and the Bible says there as we come down to verse to verse to verse uh, 15. Verse 15, and it says, and Samuel said, verse 14, and Samuel said, what me? Samuel says, what's going on here? Samuel comes and Samuel says, what is this? I can hear the bleating of sheep. I can hear the, uh, if the modern language. I can hear the mooing of the cows. I can hear the sheep going ba ba. I can hear the cows going moo, moo. What's going on? Where did these sheep and where did these cows come from? And Saul says, but they've brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and they they saved the best sheep so they could sacrifice them to God they saved the best ones for the purpose of sacrifice because I I didn't ask you to sacrifice the sheep and, and and cows of the Amalekites I asked you to obey me he thought he could bring some lambs and that would suffice disobeying God He thought he could come and bring a sacrifice, which is actually the right sacrifice. He thought he could come and bring a sacrifice, and that would negate his disobedience to God. In many ways, this is what I will call Cain is the wrong sacrifice. King Saul, I'm describing it as a negotiated sacrifice, He's bringing something that maybe God has required in other places in the Bible or other parts of our Christian experience, but it's not what God is asking for in this instance. And rather than obeying God and rather than being obedient, he brings something that he knows God likes and God, 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 God wants, but it's not what God is asking for. And he's trying to negotiate with God. He's trying to replace obedience to God with a sacrifice or service and sometimes so often we do this we try and negotiate with God obedience and surrender that he has asked for with some kind of outward service or sacrifice to him just because you lead out in a bible study on sabbath just because you're on the praise team up front on sabbath that doesn't negate what you were doing Friday night and what you're planning to do on Saturday night. God looks at that and he's like what are you playing around with me for? Mm-mm. Sometimes we negotiate mentally with God. Oh, but Lord, I'm helping out. I'm helping out at church. Oh Lord, I'm helping out at Pathfinders. Oh Lord, I'm helping out. I'm doing all of these things. I'm I'm doing all these things that I know you've asked me to do. And and as part of your church, and I'm doing all these things on God's side. I asked you to surrender your will to mine. And I'm asking you for obedience. Don't negotiate with God. Don't bring like, well, Lord, here, here's, my, here's my, my, my service of sacrifice. Now let me go and do what I want to do. So many of us fall into the trap of Saul and, and we treat God like this. God's like, no, no, no. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20 to 23, there's a passage in scripture there that we know well, where the Bible says, by your fruits, you shall know them. And he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And then it says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Lord, Lord, did we not preach? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, 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 and this? And God says, I never knew you. Yes, you did that. But there was something missing. There was something lacking. That would apply directly to this instance in Saul's life. Lord, Lord, I brought this to you. I brought this to you. And God's like, "Mm -mm." verse 22 says, to obey is better than to sacrifice. It's not just about the outward service. Don't negotiate your service with God in exchange for the obedience and the surrender that God asks for. Negotiated service, negotiated. Wrong sacrifice, Cain. Saul, negotiated sacrifice. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter five, we have another sacrifice there. In Acts chapter five, Acts chapter five, we have the story of a couple, a married couple. They're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The church is starting. The church is growing and it's booming. And they are under conviction that they should donate a portion of money to God, his work. And they say, listen, we're gonna sell that plot of land. And when we sell that plot of land, we are going to take the proceeds and give it to the work of God. That's what God has impressed them. That's what God has moved their hearts to do under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they make a vow, they make a commitment, and they make a covenant to God that they will give all the proceeds of selling the land. Acts chapter 5. It is in a man called Ananias, verse 1, with Sapphira, his wife, and they sold a possession. But they says they kept back part of the price and then it says his wife was privy to it they kept back part what goes into that keeping back part well this is what happened that they sold the land and they had initially planned to give all the money to the work of god but then after the maybe conviction of the spirit and the heat of the moment kind of subsided, they thought, well, why do we give everything? M- maybe we should keep something. And Maybe that was just an emotional decision we made while we were at church and the penis was playing the piano and the preacher was preaching. Maybe that wasn't a real decision under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And maybe I only made that decision because others were made. I-, I don't know. And the reason as to why the decision they made was not really this, this, the decision for them now and they decide they're not going to give everything to God but but their hearts are tugged and their hearts are tugged not because they're convicted to keep their promise to God but they saw how the other believers were received and appreciated by the rest of the church when they gave large sums of money and wanting to get a piece of that pie of accolade Wanting to get a piece of that pie of appreciation. They said, listen, let's still give money. We'll still give money and make people think we've given all the money, but we'll keep back some for ourselves." How did it turn out for them? The Bible says they bring it to the apostles feet. Verse three and Ananias says, why did has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Hmm. The Bible says, Ananias in verse 5, after hearing these words fell down and gave up the ghost, he died on the spot. They lied to the Holy Spirit. It's no small thing to lie to the Holy Spirit. And what was the cause of their, their, what was the motivation? Well, number one, they had a motivation of selfishness to keep back something for themselves that they had promised to give to God. And number two, They had a motivation of pride because they wanted to be seen as being faithful. They wanted to be seen as being conscientious. So they kept back uh, uh, some of it, but they still gave a lot of it because they wanted the brethren to believe they had given everything. They wanted the applause and the appreciation of their brethren without giving everything. Ananias dies and the Bible records later on in verse eight, nine, and 10, that Sapphira then comes in and she doesn't know that she doesn't know her husband has just dropped dead. And Peter asks her, well, how much money did you sell the field for? And she says, and she's in sync. She's in sync. Her and her husband have got together. They've had a little text message conversation. They know what's going on. They're in on the plan together. And, and the wife gives the same price that the husband quoted. The stories, the stories slick. They're working together. They're in tandem. She drops dead. They brought a sacrifice. In fact, let's just argue the price of the field cost 100 pounds. They brought 80 pounds. They only kept 20, but they had promised to God they would bring 100. They had promised to God they'd bring 100, but they brought 80. They still gave a lot. They still gave more probably than all the other apostles and maybe all the other church members. They brought more than everyone else maybe. But it's not a matter of, uh, 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 of how much they brought. It's a matter of what they had committed to. And God asked from them and expected of them that when the Holy Spirit convicted them and they made a decision to, 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 to follow their convictions, and now they didn't. It was a selfish, it was a prideful sacrifice. Maybe if they were alive today, they'd be those type of people that are on people that are on social media. They just love to post pictures of themselves doing acts of kindness. And there's nothing wrong with po- posting a picture of yourself doing something good for the rest of humanity. But some people only do good if they can get a picture of themselves doing good. I saw this video on Instagram recently that showed this, this person was kind of mocking and making fun of other people. It was a video, a reel where this person goes and gives money to a homeless person. The camera's here, the homeless person's sitting there. He walks up and gives the homeless person some money. Then he comes over to the camera, looks at the camera, says, no, 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 that's not right. We need to do it again. And he goes back, gets the money off the homeless person and and, and redoes it because the first shot of giving money to the homeless man wasn't quite the right angle. And he needed to get a better shot of him giving money to the homeless man that would look better for himself. It's not about doing good just because people are watching us. It's not about doing good because the cameras are are running and everyone will see us and we'll get the accolade and appreciation and support of the brethren for the great work that we have done. We don't do good things so they appear on Instagram or on Facebook or on social media or on the Adventist news. If we never get that accolade and if no one even knows that we've ever given anything even, that's still okay. Because God's not looking at how much appreciation, support, uh, and, and accolades we get. He's looking at how much of the heart we give along with whatever he has asked us to give. Cain, wrong sacrifice. Saul, negotiated sacrifice. Ananias and Sapphira, it was a selfish and a prideful sacrifice. Every single one of them gave something or even gave a lot. But it wasn't (coughs) what they were supposed to give. It wasn't what they were supposed to give. God is looking for people that will lay down everything, that will give all for him. God is looking for a people who will surrender and and give everything, a total 100% submission and sacrifice to him. That's what God is looking for. That's what God's looking for. One of my favorite places to visit in England is in the town of Oxford, the city of Oxford. And there in Oxford, you've got the Martyrs Memorial. And it's just round the corner from a white and black cross on the ground outside Balliol College. Just outside the fudge kitchen where you can get great pieces of fudge, by the way. And there the white and black crosses on the ground outside Balliol College marked the spot where Ridley, Latimer and Cramner were burned for their faith. And it's a powerful story of how they went to the flames and how they were arrested in different parts of the country. They were taken to London and then they were taken to Oxford because in Oxford they had to debate the leading scholars and theologians of their day. The issue that they were debating was communion. That was the life and death issue in their day. Is the bread the body or a symbolism of Jesus? That was the life and death issue that they went to the grave and they went to the martyrs flames about communion. Anyway, they're there, uh, they, 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 they have their debate, they're sentenced to death. Ridley and Latimer go to the flames and, and that's when they're burning at the stake when Latimer gives those, gives those famous words, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle in England by, by God's grace I shall never be put out. Powerful words. powerful words. But the, I think one of the most interesting parts of the story is that Hugh Latimer didn't actually have to die. Didn't have to die. He was given notice of his arrest. In fact, someone snuck him the knowledge that he was going to be arrested the next week. His name was John kellis Finding out he could have been arrested, he could have fled the country and escaped his arrest, but he chose not to. Even when they did arrest him, they only merely brought him a summons and said, you need to appear on this date, six weeks time. He could have then fled in the next six weeks, but he chose not to. He chose to go down there and, in a sense, turn himself in on the day when he was was to be tried. He turns himself in, surrenders, in a sense, willingly, obeying the command and the summons that he had been given. One author writing on this said he was at, towards the end of his life as well. Maybe he said there's no time for running anymore. I don't know. He was in his 80s. but But one author writing on this episode of his life said, It was a remarkably bold and courageous recognition of the fact that where great issues are at stake, the greatest of men cannot give ground anymore. He's like, I need to make a stand. And if it involves sacrificing everything I have earthly that is around, I will do that for the sake of the gospel. He could have fled to Geneva. Switzerland, or somewhere, he could have hit, but he showed up. I'm Hugh Latimer. I'm going to stand trial. And I'm going to leave a legacy written in blood, fired by the flames, that people will know there was a courageous decision that took place. And the Christian church was not just handed down, happen chance from person to person. It was handed down by great men and great women making a total sacrifice on the issues of their day. God is gonna call us as Seventh-day Adventists, us as Christians in the last days, I believe to make an equally big sacrifice, maybe on different issues in community, maybe on other things. He's gonna cause us to make a different sacrifice. Revelation 13 and 14 talk about an end time scenario that we can see building before our eyes, where we'll have to make a stand and we'll have to sacrifice everything, not a partial sacrifice like Ananias and Sapphira, not a negotiated sacrifice like King Saul and not a wrong sacrifice like Cain. We're going to have to make a complete and a total sacrifice to God. The person who embodies the total sacrifice in scripture is Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus Christ came down here to earth, when mankind sinned in the garden of Eden, 2,000, sorry, 4,000 years before Jesus came. Jesus looked down and he knew my future. My future lies and will end on planet earth. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to give up heaven. I'm going to go down there to planet earth. I'm going to be born as a baby. I'm going to live a life dejected and rejected by mankind. I'm going to train up 12 believers. And I'm going to go and die and give up everything to save humanity. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says in John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him. He gave him. He gave his son. And Jesus gave up everything. He said, I'm going to go down to earth. The price of breaking the holy law of God was a sinless holy being had to die in place of a broken law. An angel, a created being could not be the sacrifice for sin. It had to be someone who was divine. It had to be someone who was part of the Godhead, who would come down here and be be a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And Jesus says, I will go. I will go down there. I will give up everything. I will go down there, and I will uh, experience the abuse. I will experience the rejection. I will experience the complete and total rejection of humanity and ultimately the rejection of God himself. It's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says in Matthew 26 and verse 39, he says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays that prayer to allow the cup to pass because he doesn't really deep down, I mean, he doesn't, want to in his own mind want to go through the what he's about to go through we think oh well you know he's just going to die no, no no when jesus died he didn't die the death of the funerals that we see and we go to church and we shed a tear for it. he didn't die the death when we go to the graveyard and we bury the coffin in the ground he didn't die that death. jesus died what we call the second death or jesus died another word for that is the eternal death when jesus died on the cross and he said my god my god why have you forsaken me It's not a forsaken me for three days and night. It's why have you forsaken me forever? I will give up heaven. I will give up the fellowship of the father. I will give up all of that. I'll surrender all of it just so that humanity might be able to have the chance of eternity with my, my father. Jesus died a death that was a total sacrifice. He didn't negotiate with his father. He didn't bring something else to God. He brought his life and he gave everything. And Jesus looks down at us today and he simply just asks a question. He doesn't want us to bring the wrong thing. He doesn't want us to negotiate and bargain with him. He's not even concerned how much we bring. Like Ananias and Sapphira. But he wants us to bring everything a reflection of what Jesus did for us. My question as we close is, are you bringing everything to God? Are you surrendering it all? We have human examples of people I've mentioned in in this message, like Hugh Latimer, who who died at the stake, or, or Mary Andrews, who though she's not called a martyr in 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 many ways was in the sense that she died far too young and gave her whole life for the furtherance of the gospel here in Europe but in many ways they're just pale reflections but they're human ones so we can kind of resonate with their experience but that the ultimate sacrifice that we ought to emulate, emulate and we ought to strive after is Jesus Christ who gave all who gave all, so that you and I might be saved. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, and, and speak to our hearts at this moment. Lord, are we holding something back in our life? Are we giving to you, but we're just doing like Ananias and Sapphira, where we're giving 80% or maybe we're giving 90% and yet God has asked for 100%. Are we giving like King Saul where we're we're giving something, but it's not what you've asked for, but it's still something that's good. And and we're kind of negotiating in in our relationship with you. But Lord, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm giving this and I'm giving that. But God says, "No, no, 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 I want your heart. Lord, as your Holy Spirit speaks to us right now and as you bring conviction into our hearts, Lord, speak to our minds the very exact thing that we may need to give up and sacrifice. Maybe it's the trajectory of our lives. Maybe it's our career path. Maybe it's us holding back selfishly. Maybe it's us having a prideful attitude and spirit in how we serve and what we give. Or maybe like Cain, we're just bringing in the completely wrong thing that you haven't even asked for. Lord, give us the spirit of surrender and sacrifice to dedicate all just like Jesus did when he came from heaven down to earth. Lord, bring transformation in our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, whatever decision you may be in the process of making, to write it down somewhere. Maybe on your phone, maybe take a pencil and pen out and write down, Lord, what is it that you have just spoken to me about for me to surrender and for me to give? Write the specifics down to remind yourself of it later on. And if you just want to make a commitment that's public, but you don't want to give the specifics, just write in the chat box, Lord, I surrender. Make me be willing to surrender all. Make me be willing to surrender all. May God bless us and may God be with us.